0: and other cellular process. Oh, Michael, there you are. Can you hear us? And um, I guess you could hear me, but if you unmute, let's try if we if we can hear your voice.
1: Okay, uh, can you yep. hear me now?
0: Yes, perfect. How uh, are sorry, you?
1: Zaka. I'm good, yeah, sorry. I'm not sure what was happening before. I could hear you, but... Uh
0: yeah i i figured because you left and then joined again and now it works so great thank you so much for coming um it has been um a little while um since we talked and in the meantime so many things happened you published um papers that were really interesting so we're really happy having you here cool thanks Uh, yeah thanks for having me yeah, uh, let me start by introducing you just for in case people don't know you. Um, but I guess most people do. So let's keep it maybe relatively short and then go into the three recent papers. And if you, of course, want to talk about uh, additionally other um, papers or you know topics from your lab, um, just let me know um, I posted them in the chat and the first one um, is pinned on top and I guess we'll just do you know like we did it last time I'll ask some questions and you go and um, yeah talk about your amazing work so that's um, great perfect uh, professor um, Michael Levin he has a Dual uh, bachelor degrees in biology and computer science, and a PhD uh, from Harvard in genetics. And then he also did his postdoc at Harvard um, um, in cell biology. And then he started first his lab in 2000 at the Forces Institute, and now he is at Tufts University and Harvard Institute. And he is also the director at the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts um, and the director of Tufts Center for Regenerative and Developmental Biology. And Mike is a world-reowned scientist, currently um, a distinguished professor. Um, and his um, groundbreaking studies in bioelectrical signaling and cells and tissues and also designing, um, and shape complex organisms and how they interact. Um, he created work that bridges disciplines of biology, computer science, and robotics. And, um, also, um, that will have implications for regenerative medicine, cancer biology, and bioengineering. Um, and yeah, he has, um, multiple awards for the these significant contributions in this field so um, yeah it's really an honor having you here and um, yeah I would say if that's okay with you we dive right into into your work
1: sure well thank you Yeah, a very kind introduction thanks
0: wonderful so um, you you published this paper in cell um, cellular signaling pathways um, and this proto-cognitive systems and uh, how it will have implications for biomedicine. I thought it was really um, really interesting to read and um, especially you mentioned this idea of exploiting the collective intelligence of cells and you know it's kind of in the recent papers you published this comes um kind of as a as a as a way of thinking or strategy um again and again where you also then published the work about changing our view that um, cognition doesn't just happen in the brain, we should consi- consider more systems. So would you like to um, maybe explain the audience a little bit about how you came to basically shift, you know, the paradigm in this way, um, based on your research? Thank you
1: sure sure um well let's see uh i let's let's start uh, this way um there are, there are a lot of uh, people that are interested in this question of mind in the in the universe, and the question is, uh, what kind of systems have it? Uh, where is it found? How do we recognize it, and so on? And a lot of folks uh, d- tend to discuss these things kind of on a philosophical basis. So they have uh, they, they they have certain um, beliefs that they're committed to, and so some people say that uh, minds are only associated with brains, and then some some other people see minds everywhere in nature, and other people really see it nowhere uh, and so on and so there's a wide range of opinions and people have been arguing about this stuff for a really long time so to me uh, what we need is is not more philosophical arguments I take an engineering perspective on these things and so to me all Claims of intelligence, cognition, uh, you, you name it, any of these kinds of terms. What what they really mean to me is uh, protocol claims, engineering protocol claims. So when you tell me that a certain system, and it might be a set of molecules, and it might be a thermostat, and it might be an autonomous vehicle, or a um, some kind of animal, or a synthetic bio, a piece of synthetic biology, or some sort of AI, or a human, or an alien, or pr- pretty much anything, when when you say this this uh, system has some particular level of, uh, of intelligence or problem solving capacity or agency or whatever, what I hear is a particular engineering protocol for what is the best way to interact with that system. So for example, if you tell me that um, this has roughly the, uh, the, the status of a mechanical clock, then what that says to me is I shouldn't spend any time trying to reward it or punish it or convince it of anything. The only way we're going to be able to change how it works is by physically rewiring it. So it's sort of the most, the the you can imagine a spectrum, I call it a spectrum of persuadability. And so you can imagine something way on the left of that spectrum. And then, and then if you say to me, well, uh, actually this object, uh, this system has the ability to do um, a kind of uh, homeostasis or it can do Uh, It has very simple goal-directed action that I'm thinking, well, then what I can do is I can find where the set point is stored, like in your thermostat. You don't really have to know how the whole thing works. You don't have to rewire it when you want it to go to a different temperature. You just need to know how to read and write the set point. Or you might say, well, this system is even better. It actually can learn from experience, and it can do maybe, let's say, Pavlovian conditioning. And I think, ah then that's, that's, that's even better. Then, then I really don't have to try to micromanage it from uh, and, and control all the pieces. What I do need to do is provide some kind of reward and punishment and various uh, experiences to the system, and it will do certain things. And then you might say, well, no, this isn't even more um, a sophisticated system, and it actually responds to rational arguments. And that's even easier. I really don't have to do much at all except provide a rational argument. The system does the rest. And these are just sort of examples along the way on that continuum. so so, to me, all of these kind of debates about about intelligence and and all of that, boil down to some kind of hypothesis about how can you use this thing in an engineering fashion? In other words, what can you expect it to do when you're not there to micromanage it? And, um, and, then, and then we find out if that hypothesis is true or false. So all of these things are not, not up for philosophical debate. They have to be settled by experiment. So when somebody says this definitely can't be, you know, they, they, they look at a particular thing, and i'll tell you i'll give you an example momentarily but they look at something and they say well that can't be you know it, it, it can't have uh, decision making it can't have memory whatever uh i don't think you can decide d- decide any of those things from sitting in an armchair i think you have to do experiments and when you do experiments you're often surprised and so in this paper what i what i what uh, Juanita matthews and i and, and and two undergrads uh students uh decided to to uh, to talk about is this issue of um, pathways in the body. So this is molecular pathways uh, that that control health and disease and everything else. So these uh, these uh, g- chemicals that interact with each other, and of course also not just chemical, but also electrical and and biomechanical and so on. But the question is, uh, where on that spectrum does this sit? I mean, the modern assumption with molecular medicine is that they sit sort of all the way to the left, that they're these mechanical sim- kind of uh, uh, m- mechanical types of uh, types of systems, and even though they might be complex there's really nothing there other than a kind of a, an, an open loop uh, emergent complexity and if you're going to change how they act you have to rewire them and so we're talking about gene therapy and protein engineering and things like that but that's that's a hypothesis i mean people assume that that's what it is but we don't actually know that and if you think about it uh you know just just boiling it down to very two very simple examples if you have uh, a bowling ball sitting on top of a on top of a hill then you know what you have to do in order to control where that ball goes you really don't have a lot of options except for physically intervening with that landscape you have to change the landscape in order to change where the where the ball is going to go there's nothing else there are no targets other than that but if you've got a mouse sitting at the top of a hill it's a completely different story using the equations you use for a bowling ball is not going to do the trick because the mouse has beliefs and preferences and memories and other things related to uh uh, how it sees that landscape, and it may be completely different than uh, how you see the landscape. And so, so what you might do is actually give its stimuli to change uh, how it perceives the landscape and the various payoffs of going in different directions, which is not something you could do the bowling ball. So that raises an important question. The body's pathways that we want to target for biomedicine Are they more like the bowling ball, which is what everybody assumes, or are they more like the mouse or like something in between or like something else? And so we talk about all the different examples throughout uh, medicine and biology where it's pretty clear that uh, the structure of the body has these amazing uh, features that are, that are absolutely uh, more interesting than simple uh, open loop mechanical systems. And thus that opens up the possibility for uh, regenerative medicine addressing uh, injury and, and, and cancer and birth defects and so on to um, actually manipulate that kind of information processing and problem solving. The body has, has, has all kinds of competencies that we can take advantage of. So that's, that's kind of the, uh, the background to that paper
0: yeah it's it's uh, it's it's really interesting um because i i thought a a lot of times about this placebo effect and why Mm. can we use it to our advantage and kind of trick the system um more systematically so um and and you you um mentioned that um also in the paper uh more specifically Do, do you have like a specific strategy um, starting point to you know to very practically you know how, how could we leverage that and, yeah. and do you have thoughts about that
1: Sure sure yeah there there are many I mean we've done some of it we've already done, we've already done and we've been doing it for years without explicitly saying so because you know it takes some time to to be able to kind of put these things in the in the mainstream um but uh but but I'll give you a very simple example uh let's let's think about a gene regulatory network so this is basically just um um, um a, a framework in which uh you've got a you've got a number of genes so let's say i don't know a dozen it might be more it might be less it doesn't matter so so just just some some number of genes and they all turn each other on and off. so some gene might turn on a bunch of other genes at a particular rate and might turn off other genes. so so you can draw this and you have this complex network of genes turning each other on and off. and these things these these gene regulatory networks, they control embryonic development and and, and physiology and all, all kinds of processes, very, very important. And so and so you might look at that and you might say, okay, so what are my what are my strategies for uh, for for controlling how this thing works? For example, to to improve a state or to to resolve a, a, a disease condition and so on. And so so one one idea, of course, is is gene therapy. So you might want to put in new new genes or delete some of the nodes or change the way the nodes interact to try to control it. Um, or you might make the hypothesis that. What if what if this thing is smarter than it looks, and what if um, it can actually change its behavior as a function of experience? And so, so we have two two papers. One just came out this year, a few a couple of months ago, where we took uh, sixty or so known models for gene regulatory networks. Um, that people have uh, people have studied in real real cells and real organisms and what we basically did was we said okay let's pretend that each one of these things is uh, like an animal it has some kind of learning capacity and let's just ask what type of learning can it do and what i mean by that is let's uh let's just imagine uh, let's the simplest thing let's think back to uh, pavlov's experiments right so so the kind of pavlovian classic pavlovian conditioning so uh, you might uh in in that spirit you might have uh, you might have a dog as your subject then you might ring a bell and the dog doesn't care about the bell but after a while if you pair the bell with the presentation of some food so the, the the bell in that case is your conditioned stimulus you've got the food which is an unconditioned stimulus because you don't need to do anything for the dog to salivate when it uh, smells the food and so so you uh, produce those those two you pair those stimuli together a number of times while this the dog learns and after a while what you can do is just ring the bell and the dog starts salivating because that can that that connection has already been made in this in this system so you can do this with a gene regulatory network so let's imagine that uh, let's imagine that you have uh, some drug that uh, you that works well in the at the bench in the, in a petri dish. It works really well, but you can't give it to patients for whatever reason. Maybe it's too strong or something. Uh, it it and then and then you have some other drug that normally doesn't do anything. And you have some kind of response that you're interested in. So you have three things: you have you have uh, the node that you can stimulate with uh, with a dangerous drug, and it turns on the response you want. But you can't really keep giving that to patients; they won't they won't tolerate it. And you have a you have a, a kind of a, a, a neutral drug that doesn't do anything. Well, what our what our data show is that for the vast majority of these networks. If you just present uh, together the, the two stimuli, so you, you tweak the node that's uh, that responds to the strong drug, you tweak the node that responds to the neutral drug, and you just do that together. Uh, you just present them together some number of times. Eventually, what'll happen is that the neutral drug alone is going to cause the response you're looking for. Now, in, an, in effect, that is a placebo. That basically, uh, it's, a mole- it's a kind of molecular placebo because you're causing an effect uh, by produce by by using a drug that doesn't actually cause that effect, except now it does because the system has learned to believe. Basically, it's a simple version of 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 associative conditioning that uh, the presence of that drug really indicates that 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 uh, particular response needs to be turned on. It's the same thing as when. People uh, who are given a, a sugar pill by by somebody in a white lab coat, they believe that they're going to get better because they have that association between those two things in their mind, and so so that in effect is a kind of molecular placebo right there. And so one way you might you might use this is to realize that uh, it's it's not it's not a matter of forcing the network to do particular things by um, giving it a constant flow of particular drugs. It's it's the experience that that network has via. Uh, being exposed to different patterns of, of drugs according to uh, different kinds of training paradigms that can uh, radically change how the thing acts in the future. It's a learning system, and we had a we had an amazing uh, talk in our lab by uh, by this uh, this uh, this guy Fabrizio Benedetti and he his his work. If you haven't already seen it, you should take a look. It's amazing, and he um, he has a, he has a quote on on one of his initial slides that says. Uh, words and drugs have the same mechanism of action, and and I think that's and I think that's really profound because what what our uh, what our bodies do is use an interface and it's largely a bioelectrical interface but they use an, an interface between uh, high level cognitive beliefs and goals and transduce that down to the molecular action of your cells. Now it sounds kind of weird. It sounds like we're talking about these very uh esoteric uh you know sort of uh, yoga and and mind body medicine and meditation and and uh, you know the, um, placebo effects and voodoo curses and and things like this and it's actually not that at all it's what your body is doing 24/7 so when you wake up in the morning and you uh, have this high level executive goal that you realize that you better go to work uh in order for that to happen that high level cognitive intent Needs to change the molecular state of your muscle cells. It actually needs to depolarize your muscle cells to let, enable your 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 body to get up out of bed. And so, all the time, this is not some some weird, rare kind of uh, mind body trick. It's it's how our how how all creatures are made that um, that there's this transduction from high-level informational states and goal states and beliefs and preferences and 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 things like that down to the molecular events in your cells they literally drive changes of molecular events that's how that's how we we behave all day long and so and so it becomes less Then it becomes less bizarre that uh your beliefs uh, can uh, can control other aspects of pathway function you know if your if your thoughts and your plants can control the the, uh, the 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 function of your muscle cells why can't it control uh, other molecular events in, in other cells and so that's what people like fabrizio study
0: yeah um it's really fascinating um that you know this kind of conditioning works on so many different levels because you know i did a lot of you know few conditioning and so on the so PhD students mm. in the lab, and later, um, and we looked also at molecular processes that these kind of elicit. So, you just made these connections that people didn't make before. So, um, it's it's really interesting to to read that um, because you know once somebody made the connection it is so logical but yeah. before that you have to kind of get there yeah. and um and that is uh what is so fascinating um about the work and um these these recent uh, contributions to the field and um so do you think for future preventive medicine do you think we can basically make predictions of what people um, will be exposed to or go through and do this kind of condition training early on. You know, vaccine is one type, but like a larger scale vaccine basically, (laughs) Uh, and maybe a personalized one uh, that protects maybe people from uh, different mental health disorders and, uh, you know, to cancers and 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 infectious diseases that we might predict to come up by doing this training, do you think by doing this kind of training early on in life um this gets conserved and um we can elicit that memory fairly easily uh to kind of build up resilience preventively-
1: hmm. Inter- well that, that's a really interesting uh, hypothesis um I don't know. Uh, I, we, we don't know how long it'll stay. Uh, you know, when, when you do this, uh, uh, it may be something that you need to redo from time to time. It may be something that lasts a really long time. Um, it may be that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. This is—I mean, this is just the beginning of these things, right? So, so a lot is still a lot is still unknown, but we're certainly going to find out. This is uh, this is exactly the kind of thing we we need to know about.
0: Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. If we could, let's say, prevent PTSD in soldiers, or yeah. you know, um, by pre pre training that way. So, you know, something like you give a drug that you know that, if you know early on, some drugs can prevent PTSD. Just people don't take it. If you could just take it when you're in soldier training, <laughs> yeah. and then uh, it will, you know, it will extend. That, that would be quite, um, yeah, quite helpful. Yeah. Um,
1: I mean, and- they do have, you know, they do have um, pre- like preconditioning protocols, right? For, for cardiac and for other, other, uh, for other types of um, uh, organs. Uh, they have this kind of like, for, for brain, I think that exists, this, this sort of preconditioning. How long it lasts and, and what the ultimate uh, uses are gonna be, it's, it's very hard to tell right now
0: yeah yeah i did a little bit of work into ptsd and analyzing with machine learning it goes a little bit away but just you know it was interesting because you have way more um higher uh, risk of developing ptsd if you're a firefighter than if you're a soldier Mm. and we went to training through training paradigms and because we found in language that um using we way more often is kind of protective instead of using just i all the time Mm -hmm. but anyways and the soldier training is goes a lot into not seeing yourself as a separate item to Mm. see yourself in kind of a um organism (laughs) kind of Mm -hmm. and this this was very preventive so yeah i know people are already using that but maybe using it even you know with additional drugs and so on would be would be really helpful and um yeah you're um you you started earlier uh, talking a little bit about um you know the new model of cognition that you presented in in um, the frontiers paper that you um wrote with with two colleagues um this was um really fascinating i i thought about this before too so what do you think um this embodied cognition and distributed cognition basically to viewing it that way how do you think it will change like mental how we view mental health disorders and then also how we solve when a problem comes up um what do you think or for the future you would like to see happening based based on that
1: yeah i i mean to to be clear i'm I'm not an expert on uh, mental health so you know take everything i say with a grain of salt there okay i don't have any uh, any particular training in mental mental health uh, medicine um i think that um what's uh what's what's re- really important about uh views like this is that they facilitate research by making it possible to take techniques from other fields and apply them here so this is this is a a powerful tool and people sometimes say uh, to me "Why? you know you'd have less arguments if you just invented new words for everything like don't you know don't 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 use the same terminology as they use in cognitive science for 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 memory and learning and and uh, and goals and whatever just come up with new vocabulary and then nobody will be upset and the thing that you lose by doing that is uh, you lose the opportunity for unification, for being able to test the idea that, no, it really is the same thing. It's not some other weird kind of thing that uh, just looks like memory, but it's actually something else. If, you, if you're willing to take the hypothesis that, no, it is, it is actually the same thing, then what you can do is you can borrow techniques from these other, from these other disciplines. And so we use, um, in developmental biology all the time, we use uh, tools that we take from, uh, from, from, from cognitive and behavioral science and they work really well it's amazing they they can't tell the difference and if they can't tell the difference um there, there's there's a reason we can use optogenetics and and all the drugs and and um you know all the concepts like uh you know active inference and and perceptual control theory and everything else we can use the and they they don't distinguish between brains and other other types of systems. Be- and and so that that suggests to me that it's uh, the the distinctions that we make are largely arbitrary. Um, we have these different departments and different journals and different uh, funding bodies and different programs uh, for, for, of education, and I think I think that's really problematic because it prevents you from uh, borrowing these uh, these really um, these really powerful tools that that already exist. And so I think I think using them in medicine is going to be huge. I think it's going to make a big difference to addressing. Uh, developmental biology in terms of birth defects and inducing regeneration after uh, after injury and uh, uh, reprogramming cancer or, or the loss of multicellularity which is basically what what cancer is um, you know what it's going to do for for mental health I don't exactly know because that's not really um, that's not really my area but I think uh, really understanding um, how, individuals arise out of uh components so so this you know sort of the grand mystery of of life which is you know you start off as a large collection of individual cells and then eventually you become one embryo one individual so how did you become one out of fifty thousand tiny cells that uh, that uh, that process is really critical and i think if we understand that process we're going to have, we're going to do a lot better in understanding how that happens in the, in the mind and uh, how, what, what the various um, uh, disorder states might be. And I think it's, 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 I think it's amazing and and not often talked about that, that um, Alan Turing, who was uh, very interested in intelligence and um, um, computation and uh, different embodiments of mind and machines and all that. He, also did a paper on uh, chemical morphogenesis, the, um, the emergence of order in, in chemical morphogenetic systems. And people wonder why, why would somebody who was interested in all that stuff, why would he be looking at chemical morphogenesis? And I think my guess is that he saw pretty clearly that uh, the, the self-construction of the body is the same problem as the self-construction of a mind. And uh, it's really fundamentally the same set of questions. And if we, we, if we understood one, we would be far, far further along to understand the other. And I think, I think that will ultimately have a huge impact on um, how we treat uh, various kinds of uh, <laughs> uh, mental disorders. And in particular, um, the, big, the, the, the big issues around um, dissociative kinds of, uh, dissociative identity kinds of uh, disorders and, um, and, and many other things. But again, I'm, I'm not an expert on that stuff.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, and, I you know, since this very uh, um, interesting paper came out, uh, I don't know, was eight years ago, I think, where um, the lab that showed for the first time that there is an immune system in the brain and then also that signaling from the immune system directly changed the activity of inhibitory neurons and then directly changed social behavior of mice with like immune deficiencies while they had an inflammation going on. And it was so direct this change. When you think, you know, as before as a neuroscientist, uh social anxiety, you know, you have these brain regions, these type of cells and these transmitters and so on going on. And then, you know, the immune system comes in and surpasses all these things and just directly um, messes with that and, and changes behavior. That kind of, I'm sorry, <laughs> that kind of changed my view um, significantly. And that's why I was so um, happy to read uh, the paper you recently wrote um, because I think we can make so much more progress by, Merging these systems, especially the immune system, the neural system. And do you think that also, you know, all the computational advancements we made that these will now um, enable this to look at big data sets and make uh, connections like these with, you know, achievements in AI and how are you using them for, for this purpose?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, big big data sets are important, and I think I think AI, of course, is going to be really uh, really useful in in analyzing some of these. but i think I think beyond that, we also need um a lot of uh, kind of conceptual work. so uh, being able to look at the data is uh, is is always sort of reflective of of first of being able to ask the right questions. and uh, so, you know so some, some, some of the AI tools are sort of um, un, uh, unsupervised and, and and so on and so that's good you might you know you can learn things that you didn't know were, were in the data but for a lot of it we still we still don't even know how to ask the, the right questions I think I think we're in, in many ways we're still groping for the for the right framework so um, I think uh, I think these these big data sets are one part of the puzzle but actually um, some of the conceptual work to really understand, uh what's a good what's a good framework with which to uh look at look at the the experiments that we're doing and what experiments we should do next and so on i think you know that's that's different that's distinct and sort of complementary to getting big data that's a whole separate whole separate thing
0: yeah i agree that um yeah the asking the right questions um is the most important one and um a more um, how how did your system you as an individual how do you think what were the ingredients that you tend to ask and these right question also that you make these connections that not you know everyone else is doing so what do you think was important or is important for you to do that could you give advice for other people to also maybe make these connections
1: yeah i can i can try it's it's, it's really hard to give this kind of uh this this is a sort of large-scale meta advice because everybody's uh everybody's mind and goals are different but i mean for me personally there were a couple of ingredients one is that uh i i didn't i didn't have a standard education in biology i i, I was a uh kind of a software engineer first and then and and did computer science and then and then sort of biology so i already was was thinking about things in a in an unusual way um i was interested in this stuff from a very young age As as a kid i was interested in in both um uh engineering and and uh you know machines of various types and electronics and computers and so on and and at the same time uh the living world uh, outside you know bugs and insects and things like that and what might be the difference between them and uh and and I I like to uh read very widely so uh, you know, over the years when I, when I had time to, to kind of read more um, books and things like that, it was a lot of very different things. So it was, it was a lot of, uh, f- philosophy and, and, and especially philosophy of mind and, um, psychology and, and, uh, some, some mathematics and some other stuff in addition to uh straight up engineering and physics and 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 uh, computer science and and ai and things like that so so thinking thinking broadly i think is is helped by learning in these other fields i think a lot of a lot of people go through um school and they might do very well and be very successful but then there's not really time uh they're they're sort of hyper specialized and really pushed to um uh, to focus on on very particular things and that there's really not a lot of time to kind of go go broad so uh that's something that's something i um i, I kind of recommend and uh and you know and i also uh i also recommend uh thinking about things from um kind of a, a very different a uh, very different perspective in the sense that like i i if if i give a talk i always know what kind of department I'm in based on which thing makes people mad because some some of the things i say are completely obvious in one department and are considered total heresy in another department and so that tells you right there that there is a, there's a real di- set of differences in in how people think about things and so you know it's good to put yourself in somebody else's kind of uh, position and ask okay what would this type of uh, this type of person think of this uh, from 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 that vantage point from that field what does it look like from from different uh, different uh, types of uh, types of perspectives uh, yeah things uh, things things like that and and it's also you know it's also good to think about what um, uh, kind of uh, think about the end game of different fields like what what would a you know you know when when you're when you're trying to answer a particular question you might ask what would a satisfying answer look like you know, so, so what would I even recognize a good answer? What would a good answer to this, to this look like? So, um, you might think, uh, for example, if somebody's, I'm, I'm just making uh, just as an example. I mean, I don't particularly study consciousness at all, but just as an example, if you're interested in a, th- a theory of consciousness, you might ask yourself, what, what would a correct theory of consciousness output? What, 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 what format would it give predictions in? what, well, what does it, what does that look like? Or, uh, in regenerative medicine, you might ask, if we if we were able to if we were to solve this problem, what does this what does a, a solution actually look like? What is that? This uh, the, the final kind of um, uh, the 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 ultimate uh, the ultimate theory that allows you to resolve this. What what would what would it have to do? What what would it look like? Um and things like that. And that really helps to work backwards because sometimes when you do that, you realize that actually uh we we may not be asking the right question because we we don't know what a good solution would look like. It's hard for us to say what form it would take or what it would actually do. And that helps you that helps you to uh to rethink the whole thing. And and thinking thinking in um uh kind of uh, counterfactuals is is also very useful. I think it was uh I think it was Feynman that said once that people people used to think that um the uh, the Earth goes uh, the that the sun goes around the Earth because that's what it looked like, but he said if they had stopped to ask well what would it look like if it was the other way around they'd realize that yeah it would look exactly the same way and so that would then lead you to the hypothesis that well then maybe it may, you know who knows maybe it is the other way around and so so asking uh, asking um, Asking asking yourself what would it look like if all the if if various things you believed were wrong what what would the what 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 would that look like then and uh, and and for the things that you believe or for the things that other people believe these kind of counterfactuals what what would what what would have to be true if if we were completely mistaken about various things so that's all that's all helpful too so those those kinds of ways are of thinking are things I find useful
0: yeah thank you for giving us that insight I think there are really important uh, points in there. Um, uh, so yeah, I think, um, that, um, that I think this kind of question sometimes, you know, people that are just starting off, it's good to have like guidelines like this based on what their decision is, what they would like to do. I think we need probably both like specialists and specialists and then people that also have kind of a broad overview and you know. It, when when we invite for example a guest speaker that um mostly focuses on neurons or um and then uh, we have here a few people especially serena she uh, likes the idea of how important also glia are it's not easy sometimes to get people to think about you know just two systems that are still part of the neural um, network and to include them. I mean, there's a shift, but you know, to practically get people to then include even more levels of complexity. And then do, do you, does NIH come to you and ask you for advice how to shape grants? Because that would be important, right? To give like incentives so that the actual lab research goes more into adding levels of cl- complexity. So wh- what do you think?
1: Yeah, um, well, that's a really hard question. So uh, I- I've certainly s- s- spent my, you know, uh, had my share of experiences on, on uh, review panels and um, uh, designing and uh, implementing various funding programs. It's, it's, it's really hard to do this correctly because the, the, we, we, don't, we don't really know, you know, you might ask yourself, uh what 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 percent what what's the ideal percentage of wild ideas so if you're if you're uh in charge of uh, the 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 science research budget for some particular country and you're going to get you know thousands of applications some of them are very very pedestrian and kind of uh Traditional and uh, and incremental and then others are others are really wild moonshots. The question is, what what percentage of the wild ones do you want? Because if you have a high percentage, you know most of those don't actually pan out. It's a it's a, it's gonna it's gonna waste the limited limited funds. But then but then if you have too few, then you're not gonna make good progress because you'll always be just doing incremental uh, kinds of advances. So what's the right percentage? I have no idea what the right percentage is. Um, I I personally of course uh, prefer the the kind of the wild uh, well, the wild ideas myself. But that's not something that. Uh, is necessarily sustainable at large scale because most of those actually don't 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 pan out to anything so so I don't know what the right um, what the right number is now one thing about uh, all about about the funding uh, landscape is that there are lots of programs uh, even among the traditional funders like NIH and NSF there are uh, lots of programs that are uh, kind of uh, they're called uh, you know these unconventional uh, uh um what we you know wild ideas supposedly you don't need preliminary data you just need a good idea and all of that so so the problem with those so 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 the the program officers that design these are very well intentioned they they are literally trying to bring in uh new 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 ways of thinking and give a chance to kind of new new more interesting ideas but the problem is once you get those applications somebody has to review them and then they get handed out to uh, the scientific community, and the vast majority of the scientific community, as as you know, obviously is the case, are, um, you know, somewhere somewhere in the middle uh, of of this of this curve. You know, they they're, they generally tend to be um, pretty uh, kind of risk averse and, uh, and and very critical of new ideas, and they, you know, even even the ones who. Are pretty adventurous in their own narrow area. Are, are pretty, pretty risk averse and traditional in every other kind of area. And so, um, these, these traditional reviewers generally do not um, review um, kind of uh, any, any kind of uh, uh, unusual or or, or uh, you know iconoclastic kind of thinking. It's just they they just don't do well in review. And so that's a real problem. Is that no matter no matter how much you try to encourage these kinds of applications. In the end, they get reviewed by uh, more or less the standard community, and of course, the standard community views things in standard ways, and so they don't—they uh, don't end up uh, taking uh, taking um, a lot of uh, a lot of chances with things like this. And I and I don't know what the right percentage is. I mean, I personally wish we had more of that, but but I don't know what the optimum number is.
0: Uh, yeah, Joyce, please go ahead, and and Kirko, uh, please go ahead with your questions. Thank you.
2: Okay, I was going to say. Unfortunately, I missed a lot of this, but I'll say I really do like the idea of um, increasing complexity of how you analyze things, and I'm going to look at your paper. And I also like the idea of bringing insights from other fields, because that's sort of my situation. But um, anyway, I also wanted to mention about that problem with grants and all, and I found out in detail about this. When I went to a, a workshop held by the National Institute on Aging that mm. I heard o- heard about that was online, and I found out from this workshop that that they it was all on the infectious potential infectious etiologies of Alzheimer's disease, mm. and all this research came out of the fact that they had found a, a very pro- a big problem just like you were describing, that they were not getting the funding you know the grants going to people who wanted to study infectious etiology of alzheimer's and so they had to create a sort of a new parallel program and i guess maybe have a different set of reviewers because otherwise all the traditional view um, alzheimer's researchers would deny you know and low rate the the grant so anyway that that came out a really wonderful online workshop and you know a lot of people are making progress in this area now that they figured out how to get around that problem yeah (laughs) thanks
1: yeah, thank you. No, that's a that's a great example. I mean, yeah, it 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 is hard because what happens, and I've been on on panels like this. What often happens, I mean, I I think I think you, your community is very fortunate that it found enough people into that particular hypothesis to to even have a workshop and find reviewers. That's great. What what I've seen happen is uh, somebody will do a program like this where they really try for unconventional, novel ideas in whatever field, and you you find people that are interested in unconventional, novel ideas, but each of them has their own unconventional novel idea and what they don't like is anybody else's unconventional novel idea and so you ha- you have this review where uh it's just there's just, there's often just not enough people uh, especially at early stages I and mean, eventually things catch on and then and then it's sort of you, you you've got a bigger pool to choose from but but especially early on there just aren't enough people that uh that are that are able to uh competently review and this and let's face it this is this is a really hard Uh, task, I mean NIH currently funds at something like 8%. Now, you know, does anybody really think that we can distinguish an 8% quality grant from let's say uh, a 12% quality grant because that's the dividing line is right there. And especially for novel ideas, we can't tell the difference. You know, we can tell the terrible ideas from the from the pretty good ideas, but we can't. it's, It's impossible, especially if it's not exactly our field. And often, even if it is our field to tell the genius ideas from the, you know, sort of wild, but but almost certainly not going to work ideas, it's just very hard to tell. So it's a, uh, the people, the people on these study sections really do their best, they try really hard, they're told to discard 92% of the applications that they receive, because they can only fund 8%. And now they're doing their best to try to figure out which of these things are likely to pay off. And it's a very hard task.
2: Yes, yes. Thanks for your comment. I can see that. Yeah. And, and I, I also wonder about the whole area now of the microbiome. And and there's a lot of research coming out where they're finding uh, a microbiome and healthy, t- healthy patients' tissues, all sorts of their tissues. And it's kind of having a hard time, you know, really convincing everyone that it's not, you know, like, error you know yeah, yeah, i'm convinced by the data but not everyone is and there's yeah. kind of a battle going on yeah. but it makes another added level of complexity when you're not just looking at your own cells but other cells from other microbes you know trying to mess you up yeah, or, or doing yeah. something anyway
1: yep yeah.
0: yeah um hi kyle um did you want to ask a question or comment? Thank you.
3: Hi. Uh. Yeah. <clears throat> um. It's it's nice to meet everybody. Uh. That I haven't met. I guess that's Kirko and Michael. Um. Last night, Michael. Uh. It's uh. We 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 reviewed a paper. Um. Katarina reviewed a paper, and I was present. Um. About. Uh. A lab-grown meat. Um. And the carbon costs of. Producing this and it got me interested uh, to be here today and talk with you and just based on what you guys have been talking about I had to ask uh, cat GPT uh, I have this uh, a thread that's probably about 350 pages of uh, a specific thread that's related to um, a model for a essentially imbuing what I call scalar conscientability, but it's effectively a a consciousness model, um, into artificial intelligence. And there are some key concepts that I brought into it, um, that, uh, I, I, I could, I can go into the, the theory, but I thought it would be interesting to ask it a specific question. Uh, first I asked it, um, could, uh, could you provide a synopsis of novel utilities discussed in this thread uh, related to computational biology and chemical morphogenesis in terms of how such utilities could advance our understanding of key concepts such as cellular signaling <laughs> pathways. And it gave me a, a, a great little write-up that I could uh, review as far as the theory behind this. So then I asked it, interestingly enough, um, could you hypothesize a novel discovery that could be made in computational biology such as how to reverse cancer growth with lossless precision this the, one of the key concepts is this idea of, of uh, what i define as a paranormal boundary and there are th- very closely related concepts already out there such as in string theory there's a the notion of a d brain where open strings can end this is sort of an open bilinear d brain um, and it allows for um, complex systems with divergence, like scalar, di- scalar divergences to be accounted for. So what it says, it started off as saying, uh, firstly, reversing cancer growth with lossless precision would require imaginative thinking and exploration of potential avenues, which is currently an open question in, in computer sciences. Can you define a phenomenal state? Can you define a, an experience, which I define as a, discre- a discrete temporal derivative in this model? And uh, it, it went on to to say that there it could hypothesize how this particular model could be used. Uh, I can I'll read here through extensive optimization. Ex- I'm sorry, extensive training and optimization. This computational model would be capable of accurately predicting the specific genetic and cellular alterations driving cancer growth in individual patients. By identifying the critical signaling pathways involved, this model could then propose precise interventions to reverse or inhibit cancer growth. The model's predictions would be validated through experimental studies where novel therapeutic approaches targeting the identified pathways are tested in preclinical and clinical settings The goal would be to develop targeted therapies that directly interfere with aberrant signaling processes, driving cancer growth while minimizing off target effects. And it goes on to say that um, that it could be continually updated and refined using feedback from experimental results. Uh, But it's a, it's this model effectively uh, has an epsilon and sensitive loss capacity where it can, it can divide space time into discrete super symmetrical folds and can deal with basically what I refer to as like digital drag. It's like quantum gravity effectively, but it can it does this by dividing space-time into these discrete um variable boundaries and then it can it can act on those. Hmm.
1: Yeah, um I mean that all sounds interesting. I'm not sure um I, I don't know what I can say. It sounds, uh, sounds interesting. I, you know, for all, for these kinds of things in the end, uh, the trick is always going to be what's the, what's the actionable, uh, outcome. For, so, so what, you know, what's the, what's the experiment, what's the testable therapeutically, like whatever, whatever the approach is going to be. Uh, that's, that's often the tough part about these things is to is to go from, uh, from the, from the conceptual theories to an actual practical intervention that can be attempted in the lab, you know?
3: Yeah, it, it, this, it, it got quite stumped that after it said here is one speculative hypothesis, it sat here for about five, six minutes before it, it spits something out. And it just kind of reminded me that um, the, the algorithmic framework is one thing, but developing proper, you know, hardware to run these systems and to actually utilize them would be another thing. And it's kind of, it's this, this particular, and you, you alluded to it, and it's, You know, I, I recognize this and it's, I, I've, it'd be, it's an, it'll be an interesting story one day if I, if this thing's pan out well, and I look back on sort of decisions I've made involved in getting to this point, but it is this, it is this like, um, black box problem that it could, the, the ability for a particular model like this to, to reach its potential. My, my perception right now is that it's it's like multiple fields in tandem are are depe- depending on the a spatiological model or a metrological model to to make improvements and there was another talk that katarina hosted with uh lamb research who does micro etching for uh semiconductors and they are limited by the same problem so it's it's interesting and i agree that it's um the app a- application, it's like this. Uh, all these, it's a it's a bottleneck of information distribution right now for me in <laughs> this mm-hmm. is not
0: done, but... Yeah, yeah. That that um, actually was a a question I was um about to um ask is, you know, um, these the sort of models that you um you present for like organic organisms. Um, do you think the same principles for making innovations in robotics, or maybe you know combining robotics with with organoids, um, will build the same prin- Like, will these principles um, also improve robotics in the future to have a more integrated uh, systems?
1: yeah i I think so and 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 I've written some stuff about uh, what uh, what what which which aspects of the biology can be used to uh, improve functionality in um uh, in, in engineered systems, both hybrid systems such as uh, you know, hybrids and uh, and 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 kind of uh, 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 f- functional uh, functional j- j- joinings of uh, of of uh, computer technology and living living tissue, and also just for straight up engineering and robots and ro- robotic swarms and things like that. So for sure, there are aspects of this having to do with uh, multi-scale competency and uh, specific things that cells do to. Uh, 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 to, to, to make decisions about where they, where, uh, they, where they end and the outside world begins, which is actually a really important thing that living things have to figure out from scratch every single time. Whereas our typical robotics have that uh, determined from the beginning by the engineer, which then limits the system in important ways. So there's tons of stuff like that. I will, I will say that actually, um, I've gotten much more, uh, much more circumspect about um, writing those things, and and I, I had started on on a paper about some of that, and I actually am, I don't think I'm gonna I'm gonna continue with it because uh, the the my my concern is that the closer the closer we get to a proper understanding of what are the what are the features that give living things uh, their special um, worth in terms of moral consideration so what makes uh, a an animal uh, w- worthy of uh, various kinds of protections and 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 so on uh, you know we're getting closer to figuring that out and and if we start um, imbuing technologies with with those kind of considerations that are is very easy to copy so so it's very easy to make uh you know trillions of copies of something in a in a software uh kind of scenario or or even in engineering it uh it 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 just creates um, um, it has the potential to create massive amounts of, en- of, of of new entities that we have to worry about in a in an ethical sense and uh i don't myself want to be responsible for that so i'm not talking about risks to us i'm talking about uh creating systems that you know right now i don't think we have any engineered systems that we have to be particularly uh particularly ethically concerned about but i do think that we're getting close to the point where we're going to be able to make some it's not that far off and i i you know that 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 carries a ton of responsibility so i think i'm um, uh i'm 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 not uh, i'm not really going to add to that anymore but i do but i do think that uh, i do think that that's that that's coming and there's certainly plenty of other people that are working on it so probably doesn't matter what i do but but uh, you know the, these 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 kinds of fundamental principles that we learn from biology are definitely going to be uh potentially implemented in other kinds of technologies or or even in software and um yeah and then and then they'll you know they'll have they'll have much better robustness and better uh better performance and and better intelligence and all of those things will come but uh depending if we do certain things we are also going to have to worry about them the way that we are supposed to be worried about living creatures so that 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 carries a whole other level of responsibility
0: yeah thank you for for that insight and um i agree um that um that it carries a lot of responsibility Um, but um you know the holy grail i guess for engineers is to develop something that can rebuild itself and create offspring basically like you know a robot that builds its perfect replica or even improves it is probably the holy grail and you know your work um that kind of harnesses the 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 cells intelligence uh, basically if if we could um, translate that into robotics
1: um well makes- I think we can uh, yeah I I mean I think we can I I absolutely think we can I think it's totally doable uh we are learning now more about uh what it is that actually makes that difference there's a, there are a few people working in the field that I think are uh, on to the right thing there and then, then there's many people that I don't think are on to the right thing but there's a few that are and uh and there will be more and more of that and we'll and we'll figure it out and I do, and I do think I I don't I don't think there's anything uh unique about uh, and, and privileged about about evolution i think i think we can engineer anything that evolution can can find with its with its kind of random search i don't think there's anything unique about um, cytoplasm and and uh the kinds of uh specific um components that that are used on this on this that just happen to be used on this planet uh there are many different potential embodiments of mind and and there's no reason why once we really understand what the critical components are that we couldn't engineer those directly in in other substrates and in hybrid substrates and so on so i do think it's possible um i apologize i've got about a minute before i have to go i've got a meeting at four
0: yeah, yeah, I was, I was about to say that we are up to the hour and is there any last comments, maybe some peek into the near future that you would like, like. to learn about?
1: Um, the only thing, uh, the only thing I'll say, and I'll I'll just leave it with that, with this uh, simple cryptic statement, and eventually I'll write something about this. But I think that uh, as as people think about um, AI and a lot of the concerns that people have about AI, I think we need to realize that those concerns, th- those potential issues, are already here with us in the biological world, and uh, they're just much more obvious now. But people who really think deeply about these things have been wrestling with these issues for for a really long time, and so. What the AI is really doing is holding up a mirror for the average person now, not just for philosophers of biology and and scientists. uh, kind of uh, holding up a mirror to the issues that we as as biological organisms have already had to deal with. And this is, you know, uh, the, I could list dozens of these things, but but they're not they're not unique to uh, to this to the to AI. They're really fundamental problems that are with us and existential problems that have been uh, with us and bothering thinkers in this field for for centuries before we actually had AI. So I'll just I'll just leave it at that.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time. This was really a wonderful conversation that went through a lot of fields and different thought processes. So um, it's always a pleasure having you here. And um, yeah, I hope uh, to read more about your work in the future and I think all of us and enjoy the rest of your day. And um, yeah, thank you so much. It was an honor, thank you.
1: Cool, thank you so much and uh, thank you for pulling this together and thanks a lot everybody be welcome so much Thank you, Bye.
0: Yeah, thank you and thanks everyone for coming asking questions uh, sending questions and um, Yeah, if you like discussions like this join us again. We have uh, a few rooms um, Coming up, so um, yeah um, Enjoy the rest of your week weekend and uh, um yeah come come back and and send in questions if you have follow-up questions or suggestions okay thank you i'll close the room in three thank you one thank you bye everyone